everyone, and welcome to another great episode of Turban Thinker. And today we're joined by a beautiful and glamorous Padmaja Bomaretti. She's a multi-talented C-suite exec, and she has a great track record launching and building global brands in luxury, jewelry, and retail. Now, Padmaja's international experience within US, UK, and Europe, Australia, and India, as some of the markets that she's worked in, has really gained her expertise in e-com, digital marketing strategies, strategic planning, and creative production. But alongside a very impressive background that she has, she's also a brainiac, and she's in M&A, capital markets, and consulting. She's known for her collaborative and strategic thinking and building high-performance teams. And on top of all of that good stuff, she's an MBA grad from Harvard. <laughs> Wonderful to have you on Turban Thinker. It's so great uh, for you to join me today. And so welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to have you. So are you back in New York? Yes, back in New York. Back in New York. And it's hot. It's sticky. It's actually um, thunderstorming right now. Oh, so it is hot and it's definitely sticky. Yeah. <laughs> so, Padmaja, um, we're, we're going to get right into the, the, the questions. And obviously, I just sort of did a very small intro on your incredibly impressive background. And what's striking about it, it's, it's not dis too dissimilar to myself. You've gone through a lot of different roles and have such a rich experience in different countries all around the world. So... Let's start with, you know, it's 20 years. So how do you condense that? Can you give me a little glimpse of what that was like? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so as you mentioned, I started my career in investment banking at Morgan Stanley, you know, typical sort of three-year analyst program. Um, I then actually went to India and volunteered in microfinance. So completely different, working in slums and villages, helping to give loans to women uh, to start their own small businesses. Um, applied to business school, attended Harvard for a two-year MBA, um, worked in BCG's consumer retail practice for a short stint the summer in between, but ultimately moved to London for eight years. So worked in M&A first for the first three years at a firm called Greenhill, and then actually made my way into fashion. Um, I was about six months away from a promotion in investment banking. I knew I didn't want to be an investment banker for the rest of my life, but I knew if I didn't try something different, I probably never would. So I called my own bluff and tried to make my way into the fashion <laughs> yeah. and luxury goods industry. So, so I mean, if, if we just, just not to cut you off, but just on that point, I mean, yeah. that's a, we had a conversation uh, a couple of weeks ago and we were sort of going through the details of your career. And when you mentioned that, that is a major move, right? That's a jump. And you, you sort of, so you just talked to us about, you were consulting different business segments, investment banking, and then boom, fashion. I mean, how do you transition to fashion? Well, um, it was actually quite difficult <laughs> for a while. Um, I, fashion was always something I was really interested in, particularly luxury goods. I was always really interested in the intersection of artisanship and business. So how do you create a how do you take a beautiful creative product and bring it to market and sort of everything in between? Um, I was also always really interested in like consumer psychology, why people are attracted to certain brands, why people are loyal. But I didn't really know how to get into the industry. And this is back in 2010. So there were very few MBAs in the fashion and luxury goods industry at the time. Yeah, yeah. And um, unless you come from a sales, merchandising or marketing background, it's very difficult to even describe how you can add value and where you can add value. So it, it took a while. I mean, I probably spoke with about 80 or 90 people over the course of six months yeah. uh, to try to make my way into the industry. 
And it and took what a lot. Was that, what was that way in? I mean, clearly you have a, so the logic would say it would be into sort of fat finance. Is that the segment that you thought, okay, if I enter through that kind of vertical, that would then allow me to learn? I mean, talk to me a little bit about strategically what you thought in mind was the best route to market. Yeah, so I was actually looking for more sort of strategy and business development roles mm -hmm. um, because typically finance at these companies, you know, they're looking for CPAs yes. and they're looking for people with, you know, an FP&A background, which I didn't have. Right. Um, so I was looking for more strategy and business development roles. But I think, you know, as we spoke about, a lot of the strategy is really done at the CEO level um for a lot of these brands so they don't necessarily yeah. have strategy or bd teams um unless you're really work looking at a big brand so my way in was um i was introduced to premiera the private equity firm that bought valentino um and the um the partner that had done the deal had said you know i've gotten you 30 minutes with the valentino ceo can you be in milan next week i said sure of course i can um yeah. so Went to Milan, um, wound up working for him and the commercial director um, for three months on sort of strategic projects. Anything they didn't really have time to focus on, they'd say, hey, go away, look into this, um, come back with a recommendation. Um, so part of that was new markets. Part of it was, you know, actually like looking at um, some of the licensed businesses categories that they had and whether they should bring them um, owned and operated. So it was a great first experience. Um, but luckily, I'd already actually met with Burberry before I moved to Milan. I was introduced to um, someone in HR there who I got along with really well. Uh, and she said, listen, there's nothing for you right now. If a position opens up, I'll call you. And to be honest, I didn't really believe her because people say, that all the time yes they uh, do but, but she's an, you know, <laughs> well it's amazing. the exit card isn't it it's a really gentle it, polite way of saying you'll never hear from me again right? <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. and this woman was yeah. incredible and kept in touch and emailed me a few months later saying this position has come up and it was exactly what I wanted to do so strategy and business development in emerging markets so before so, we sort of talk about that role specifically I mean what is it that excited you to move into fashion, right? Because from the outside, I mean, well, I'm not going to tell you what people would usually say, but clearly there's a perception that you have, you know, going to the fashion industry. And so what was your original view looking from outside in? And then talk to me about the reality of when you're actually in, because it's very different to what people think, you know, it's all glitz and glamour from the outside and you want to be in fashion, but it's not really that glamorous on the end. It's a lot of hard work. No, you're absolutely right. And it was funny, you know, I definitely had that impression as an outsider first before going to work at Valentino um, and Valentino being, you know, one of the most you know, glamorous brands out there. Yes. So I think my impression of the industry was that it was glamorous and it was all about the product and the customer experience and um, and really setting that emotional, aspirational quality for brands. Yeah. Um, and I think once you're in it, you're right. It's day to day. It's literally like, how many customers can we get through the door? How many of those customers can we convert? You know, what's the average price point? Yeah. How do we these <laughs> exactly? <laughs> it's, it's like maybe it's you know a few weeks of the glamour when it comes to the show or fashion week, but prior to that, it's you know it's a slog. Right? Whether you're a creative director of a business and the pressure is on to have to create winning collections, and obviously if you're doing the operational and the core part of the business, it is. It's all about 
you know, that number crunching. And like you said, how do you get a customer? And it's such a crowded place, right? There's so much noise and it's a competitive space. And, and no one needs another, you know, product, right? Or, no. or another brand. And no. so how do you stay top of mind for those customers? You know, how do you stay relevant, especially right now when the pace of change is just so fast? Yes. Um, and, you know, there, there's so many brands out there. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, the transition, because, you know, as we spoke last time and and, and we had the discussion, you moved to sort of from fashion to jewelry, and then sort of it's so di- it's different, different segments of the luxury industry. So how did that move from fashion lead you to sort of high end jewelry or diamonds? I mean, that's pretty exciting as well. It's similar to me again. Yeah, no, it, it, it was. So, you know, I, I actually went from, you know, high end fashion of Burberry to actually more sort of low end at Gap to then actually working um, in Australia first at like a, a really the only heritage Australian brand called RM Williams, which made these, you know, $500 boots um, all vertically integrated in a factory in Australia to then actually to, to diamonds in the U S. So it was the first job I, I had when I moved back to the U S less than four years ago after spending 10 years away. Um, and it was really through, um, through a friend of mine from business school who was an investor in the company and introduced me to them. And again, it was really all for me, it didn't really, the category um, didn't matter to me. It was more about creating that frictionless customer experience online. And what was interesting to me about this particular company and role is that they were digitizing um, the diamond industry, which, you know, you know, is an incredibly archaic industry. Um, And they were looking actually at diamond resale. So they developed a digital diamond resale platform where you could sell your diamonds uh, without ever leaving your home um, and have your bank account credited. Um, which to me was incredibly interesting because it's a fragmented market with about 40,000 mom and pop shops um, yeah. all throughout the U.S. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. you know, multi-billion dollar market. Um, and so that was really interesting. And it was also my first foray more into the digital side. Um, and I helped them launch a direct-to-consumer fine jewelry brand as well. Um, so learned a lot about, you know, how to create a Shopify platform yes. <laughs> and, you know, how to start really small because, um, you know, it was a startup. So, I mean, if, if we talk about the common thread, right, because you have sort of uh, worked within the different categories and clearly each and every one of them has a certain brand DNA, you know, a certain consumer experience, a, a behavior, uh, obviously um, different categories. You've gone from luxury, like you said, to sort of main and mass. And so what would you say have been the similar traits, right, in, in, mm-hmm. in one part of the question, and, and then, of course, the, the differences, which are also quite obvious. But there's a common thread, right, because a brand is a brand is what I'm trying to say. I totally agree. There's a common thread. A brand is a brand. At the end of the day, I think regardless of what category, regardless of what price point, you know, whether it's, you know, a Burberry handbag, a diamond or, you know, piece of like Walmart clothing – Everyone wants to feel beautiful in, you know, what they wear, how they appear, how they how they present themselves. And yeah. I think regardless of the brand, it's creating that emotional connection to the customer um, and, you know, having that sort of emotional value proposition um, to stay top of mind with the customer as a brand right now, as, you know, as uh, I mean, the entire industry has been like bifurcated, right, between like luxury and value. Um, yeah. But I think there's a lot to offer uh, in both segments. Um, and I think it's really just creating that emotional appeal. I also think right now, 
you know, consumers are demanding much more transparency. Yeah. Um, and they're a lot smarter than, than we are, frankly. Um, and they can tell when brands are authentic to what they're standing for. There's, uh, you know, a lot more transparency throughout the entire value chain. Obviously, there's, you know, um, a need for sustainability within our industry. Um, so yeah. I think there's a lot of things that connect brands, regardless of price point and category. I mean, it's a, absolutely. Um, and then, you know, it is a very interesting time, clearly, because we're seeing sort of the, the fashion industry getting sort of tipped on its head and <laughs> there's never been so many challenges and, um, you know, all the attention. There's a lot of focus on the industry, a lot of focus on the entire cycle, the, the, the chain, um, you know, on production. Consumers have a huge role now. It's always been typically brands pushing the messages, pushing the product. And now, you know, with what we've been facing for the last four or five months, clearly the consumers in the driving seat and they're demanding to know, um, all of that transparency, which you just alluded to, which brings me on to the subject of clearly sustainability. We read about it. We're, you know, heavily vested in it. Certainly we're seeing a lot of, you know, efforts towards it. But at the same time, you also see a lot of brands, you know, greenwashing and marketing and talking about it, but not actually doing it. Because, you know, I speak to so many brands that I love about sustainability and, and typically the common thread between all of them is it's not a, just a process. It is a lifestyle is how you live and breathe. And it's a, a, the whole cycle, right? It's the whole ecosystem that you come from. And we see, you know, Gen Z is heavily invested into this. And, but at the same time, you know, there's fast fashion. It, mm -hmm. cheap prices are still flying off the shelf. There's still a demand, you know? So how is that scenario playing out? Right? Because you have on one side, these, you know, these champions or ambassadors for value and for authenticity and brand and social responsibility on the other side, you still see the cheap brands flying off the shelves. So what's your view? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Listen, I, I think there's always a place, um, you know, for fast fashion and, you know, having that accessibility at those price points. However, I think there's going to be greater and greater demand for ethical business practices, whether, as you alluded to, fair treatment of workers, um, you know, su sustainability across, you know, raw materials, um, waste, etc. And I think like anything, these things take time. Um, you know, as you know, like most fashion, you know, value change, they, they take 15 months, right? And a lot of that yeah. has been reduced yeah. to 12 months, nine months. I mean, fast fashion, obviously, it's more like three to four months. So I think as a lot of the bigger players shorten their supply chains, um, I think that's when they can put in these more sustainable business practices into their processes. But I think a lot of these things, you know, just take time. So, and, and, and I mean, like you said, I think the great news about the current situation that we're in is it's really accelerated this need, right? This demand from consumers. And, you know, hopefully we see the businesses changing, though it is proving to be very difficult for the bigger groups because that agility and speed clearly is not on their side. So you're in digital marketing, sorry, digital strategies, you're heavily invested in e-com as well. Your experience has been very much focused on that. So talk to me about technology. We see artificial intelligence is taking center stage. You know, the retail landscape is very much changing, especially now 
towards AI and virtual reality. So where do you see that space moving? I think AI and machine learning is going to permeate every single industry. Um, so I think for retail and e-commerce, it's going to have um, an increasing impact. It already has. So obviously, AI is already being used for personalization. You know, companies like Stitch Fix do this really well. Um, you know, tailoring product discovery recommendations, improving search. Um, a lot of companies are using AI for customer service and chatbots. Like I've read recently that Tmall's chatbots are able mm -hmm. to answer. 90% of customer um, inquiries um, and provide things like styling recommendations without ever actually speaking to a human. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I and, don't know. I don't know what to read. Yeah, okay, that's a good thing. I don't know. I believe in the power of human beings, you know? It's an equal no, balance, I guess. That's the thing for me, Padmaja. Everything is about, you know, an equal balance. So it's it's a it's a phenomenal tool that we have, but, you know, what what is what sort of grinds on me is this, complete dependency and thinking the world is going to completely revolve around that and then what about human beings guys <laughs> no and listen i completely agree with you and and i think it's you know i think of it um similarly to how like mobile phones and mobile phone platforms helps yes. countries like india and you know continents like africa actually like leapfrog um like generations of technology Right. Yeah, and all of yeah. the good that came out of that from like a farming perspective, you know, whether obviously across industry. Um, I went to a conference um, and I really like this quote that this gentleman used. It's not my quote, um, but he called AI empathy at scale. Uh -huh. And I and I really like that. Um, and I also think think similarly to what you're saying, nothing can replace human interaction. No. Um, but I think with the growth of digitalization and the growth of e-commerce, particularly during this period, during COVID, um, I think, you know, technology becomes more and more relevant to recreate those experiences online. So, you know, I have my favorite stores. I know, you know, the names of the salespeople that I go to. They know what brands I like. They know my size. Um, and, you know, and they know, like, how I like to shop and how yeah. I like to interact. Um, yeah. And I think it's a, it's, it's a social. It's a social and for um, me, it's it's always been social, yeah. Um, and it's always been you know a fun thing to do, you know, with a friend or two or with my mom. Um, and I think that social aspect, um, you know, is really important to the shopping experience, which is why I think you know the growth of social commerce, live streaming, you know, bloggers. Yes. Um, and, you know, um, and obviously like the growth of platforms like YouTube and TikTok and, you know, styling recommendations, makeup recommendations, et cetera, tutorials. Um, yeah. I think we're only going to see a growth in that. Yes. yes. And I think that's being fueled by a lot of the technology on the back end. True. Very true. So let's shift the conversation a little bit to you and your sort of personal background and, and your history. So. When we spoke last time, again, you mentioned that, you know, you come from a, your parents were immigrated to, to the States. Um, you spent the, a big part of your life in the U.S. and then clearly you traveled, you know, all around the world. Like you said, you've just recently come back. So what does the new America look like for you? Right. <laughs> we had that conversation. Yeah. But I'm gonna <laughs> ask it again. <laughs> Listen, it's 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 a really difficult question for me to answer. And, you know, as we spoke about, I spent 10 years abroad. So I was abroad from 06 to 2016. Um, and I came back at a very difficult time for America. Um, and frankly, I've been incredibly disappointed and, you know, quite angry um, with a lot of the things going on in the U.S. right now. 
Um, yeah. I think was it was it Barack Obama who said to his daughters that um, that the path of progress is not always linear. Yeah. Um, and um, and uh, you know I know it's a it's a widely used quote, but I always think about that in my mind. Um, and I'm actually quite heartened more recently. Um, and I think you know I was reading a lot about you know John Lewis obviously over the last. Um, few weeks especially um and i think he was quite heartened to see um the level of protests happening right now um after after george floyd um and you know there's systemic things that the u.s needs to address um and if i have any reason for optimism it's seeing you know the number of people that want to address um, and demand for these changes, the diversity of that, you know, of those populations, not just across, you know, ethnicities, but age groups. Yeah. Um, and, you know, if I try to make myself feel better about what's going on in the U.S. right now, I think that, you know, maybe we needed a bit of a wake up call. Right. Maybe we needed to be reminded of how important civil liberties and democracy um, and I mean, all I guess these things that's are. The irony, isn't it? That is the irony, because for the state that prides itself, for a country that prides itself on that democracy and the liberty, it's just, you know, it is comical and really sad. Like the last four years, what we've seen and, and clearly this this turmoil that's happening now. But, you know, there's always definitely that optimism there and I just hope that it comes very soon really because it's very disheartening to see what's going on it's incredibly disheartening to see and you know I'm just hoping for I'm hoping something really positive comes out of this listen in 2018 a lot of positive change come across the house and all of the women elected yeah. to Congress mm-hmm. um, and all of, you know, the minority women elected to Congress. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as we've talked about, I've always been a big um, believer in female empowerment. Definitely. Um, and, and I do think this was this was a massive wake up call to the U.S. You know, what do we stand for and how do we want to be, you know, portrayed as an ethical, equal society? And, you know, what industries like what do we need to change in order to make that happen? Um, and, you know, and how do we do it now across age groups again? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the great thing now is that we do have, and one of the, you know, the biggest positive things about digital uh, media or social media is that ability to group and sort of bring communities and, and you know, waves of people together across global landscapes, you know, and share a, a united message. So I think when you have the tools that we have, and like you just said, the technologies, that's a great example of, of enabling that change. So I, yeah, I agree. And, and I also think the, the other thing I'd, I'd like to um, add is that I think the power of digitization is access, right? Yes. It allows access to, you know, a whole populace that never had a voice before. Exactly. Um, and I think the more we can bring that voice to the forefront, the better off we'll all be. And, and I think we're seeing that clearly it continues to sort of tidal wave, you know, and the voice is getting louder and then hopefully people will be listening. So, you know, I want to go back to the fact that clearly you traveled an extensive amount and lived all over. And then very similarly to my question before, it's what is that common thread that you've lived in different cultures and different continents, but at the end of the day, you know, you are dealing with people. So there is that commonality. So talk to me a little bit about that diversity that you've experienced. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think every place I've lived in has taught me quite a lot, you know, so 
New York, um, you know, as you alluded to, I come from an immigrant, you know, Indian family, and I think it taught me the importance of entrepreneurship and innovation. I love living in London. Most of my friends in London are very international. Um, and I think just because of the geographic position of London, it gave me so much exposure to, you know, um, parts of North Africa, the Middle East, obviously the rest of Europe. I covered Japan out of London. Um, so just that international perspective, I think, that I gained in London. Yes. Um, and I think a place like Sydney taught me, you know, the importance of having a balanced lifestyle and also taught me like the beauty of nature and being outdoors. I've always been such a city girl. And obviously, you know, Sydney's a city. Um, yes. But there's these beautiful national parks in the middle of the city. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, you know, just the benefits of being outside and being in nature and take it, taking advantage of, you know, all really the planet Earth has to offer, I think, is what Sydney taught me. Yeah. And I think that's that's a beautiful summation because you, you know, to, like exactly that sort of being inspired by Mother Earth. Right. And, and all the incredible people that I'm sure you would have, you know, met across the journey. And I want to, you know, on that touch on the fact that you had your stint in India and, and with regards specifically to microfinance. And I want to talk about, you know, the, the incredible effect that has in changing people's lives and, and, and what your experience was in that specific time. No, absolutely. I mean, um, working microfinance in India was probably the most difficult thing I've ever done, um, but also the most inspiring. So, you know, when you give women access, again, coming back to that point to financial independence, they tend to invest in their communities and in their families and in their neighborhoods. Um, and seeing the level of empowerment that that comes from, you know, the loans were $200, $250 a year, but these women were living on less than $2 a day. And, you know, teaching them like financial independence, but, you know, um, um, helping them set up their own small businesses um, and, you know, allowing like the confidence that comes with that and the self-reliance and therefore then the confidence that they have in their own communities. And, you know, coming back to the point of, you know, all of a sudden you have a voice in your community because you're con contributing financially the, to the community as well was incredibly inspiring. Um, and, you know, seeing these women, like some of these women were on their seventh or eighth year of these loans and built these small enterprises. So they went from, you know, selling uh, vegetables, buying a cart to sell vegetables on a cart in the middle of the marketplace to actually um, supporting seven or eight other women um, through their enterprise um, to, you know, sell more, more goods in various marketplaces around the village. Yeah, and um, it's phenomenal. So, it is microfinancing, you know, I mean, we've been involved over the years and so passionate, you know, my husband and I, and it is remarkable, truly, to see that change and what it can do. And you're very right. I mean, it's, you're, you, you know, they're thriving. Women are typically the ones that are invested in because of their responsibility and, and, and a number of factors that, but absolutely, it's, it's, it's so empowering to see them, yeah, build their communities, contribute and, and employ. I mean, it's really, it's remarkable, remarkable. And, you know, microfinance has a 97, 98% repayment rate. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So. Yeah. No, it's, 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 you know, you, you, you'd hope to see so much more of that. That's what you can only wish for because absolutely it's an incredible model. Um, so I want to talk about the people that have inspired you in your life and in your journey. And, and you've spoken about, you know, women like Christian Lagarde, Nancy Pelosi, Stacey Cartwright, and the most important one being your mother. And clearly, I can completely relate to that. So I'd like for you to tell us more about 
who, you know, why those women have inspired you and what is the importance of having them in your life? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, so Christine Lagarde talks a lot about how women um, as a minority really have to prove our worth all of the time. And that's the reason, you know, we overprepare, we overstudy, we overanticipate. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that's the case with a lot of female leaders. And this is something that I really relate to. Um, and I think we spoke about this, you know, first time we spoke, but I definitely suffer from imposter syndrome. <laughs> you know, yeah. just, like, yeah. despite what I've achieved, you know, despite living around the world, despite, you know, yes, different things, I still never, I always have that doubt in my mind. Like, what if I'm not good enough? Yeah. What yeah. if someone's going to find out that I've been making it up? That all you're the way human? Along? <laughs> I know. I know. It's, it's so funny you say that, but I'm certain you know, there's all, all the females listening and the millions of women out there and the billions of women out there can all relate. It's something about us. It's how we're built. Yeah, Ab- absolutely. Um, so, you know, I think a, a lot of these women talk about that. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, I just think she's such a boss. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> and I think she's one of the ta- most talented politicians that we've ever seen in the U.S. Uh, Stacey Cartwright was CFO when I was at Burberry and I had a massive girl crush on her. Yeah. Um, and she's, you know, unfairly intelligent, um, incredibly strategic, but also just incredibly kind. And, you know, as yeah. you said, just the deeply perfect human. Blend. The perfect blend. And then with my mom, I mean, my mom has always been an inspiration to me. Um, You know, she's one of the most courageous, kind and selfless people I know. And I think she's really taught me how to be simultaneously brave and vulnerable. Yes. Um, And, you know, and and take risks. And, And I think this is, you know you know, the multifaceted um, pieces of all of us that we struggle to, to sort of coalesce and combine. You know, your, your achievements are phenomenal. And I love your spirit, your energy, your confidence. It's, it's, it's fabulous. So I want you to talk to us a little bit about your current role and how you see, you know, it, it's a huge responsibility. And clearly now you're navigating your way through all of the challenges that are coming and opportunities. So talk to me about your role currently and what's the future for it. Absolutely. So I'm currently at Walmart um, and I lead uh, strategy and business development for the fashion e-commerce team. Um, So everything from helping to craft and articulate the overall fashion strategy. um, How do we bring on new brands? um, How do we make um, Walmart more top of mind when it comes to apparel, footwear and accessories? What are some of the strategic brands um, that we want to partner with? What are some of the new business models that we want to get into? Um, And how do we think about how technology, you know, helps us get um, all the way there uh, in terms of creating a frictionless customer experience online. Um, And I think, you know, that's obviously one of the big trends that, you know, we can thank Amazon for, right, in terms of creating a completely frictionless experience, convenience, you know, expecting your package yesterday. Um, And I think, um, you know, all of us as retailers have a lot of catching up to do. I think um, re-commerce is a big trend. So rental reseller subscription, it's one of the reasons that we partnered with the resale company ThreadUp, um, coming back also to sustainability that we were talking about earlier. Um, and I think that's really important for Gen Z and for millennial customers. And I also think that's why we've seen a, the growth of peer-to-peer marketplaces, yeah. um, you know, whether you know, be like an Etsy, for example. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Um, and I think that trend's going to continue. Other trends I think that are going to continue that we have have our eye on or social commerce. So again, coming back to the point of how um, shopping is inherently social. 
So how how are these media and entertainment platforms actually tying in um, consumers and buying behavior to sell online? We talked a little bit about like live streaming. Um, yeah, I mean, it's all the new, you know, it's and hey, that's why I'm doing Turban Thinker, right? Because that's where it's at. I mean, you know, that power of communicating and exactly to your point and how you're integrating all these technologies and how you're bringing that social element is I guess everybody's top of mind right now so can you talk to us a little bit about some key projects maybe that you're working on or that you're launching or well I mean um in terms of key projects we're actually constantly thinking about new business models yeah um and so you know thinking about what do we want to tap into in terms of growth um how do we access those brands online for Walmart obviously you know we have 4,800 stores in the U.S. um and we also have a massive online business um but you know our reach can be a lot greater online right like the endless aisle experience that Amazon gives you where do we want to play in all of that Um, But how do we also have a point of view, right? So um, curation, editorial, um, and having a point of view, you know, at our accessible price points is really important for Walmart. And how do you, again, like bring that together in like a seamless shopping experience that's driven by um, digital technologies? Incredible. I mean, wow, big role um, and an amazing place to, to be right now, especially when we're sort of looking at the changes that are so dynamic, you know, that's the thing, Padmaja, it's like every day is a new day and every day you've got a newer technology, bigger, better, best, faster. And your consumers, like we were talking about earlier, are just so savvy. I mean, you've got to keep up with their pace. You've got to keep up with their demands. You've got to sort of integrate that emotional intelligence into it, you know, and it's just, it's this like multidimensional sphere of, emotion and technology and all of that has to come into play and it has to seem seamless and effortless and available and (laughs) And authentic and authentic and I mean you know that I guess brands have always been challenging groups like Walmart my goodness I can only imagine the scale um, you know of that and having to sort of navigate is is incredibly um, you know incredibly challenging as well as a huge opportunity to be in that space right now so just before we wrap up, I want to ask you, and it's a, I guess it's a gazillion dollar question, but looking back at your career, what has been the key highlight? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a difficult one to answer, um, but I think if, if I had to choose, it was probably my time at Burberry. Um, you know, I was still like, it was, I was still fairly young um, and it was really my first entry into fashion and luxury goods. Um, and I covered, I think, 27 countries when I was there. Wow! So just the ability to travel to places like Azerbaijan and Mongolia and Tbilisi, Georgia um, and the Baltics and South Africa, where I opened stores um, and learn about the different customers um, in, you know, in all of those various geographies and what they had in common um, and what was different um, was just incredibly lucky, I think, at that point in time. Yeah. And also to be at Burberry, um, you know, I was there from 2010 to 2013. So it was really when Burberry was on the cutting edge of everything digital and social. Yeah. So it was a very sort of fortu- fortuitous time to be at, um, at Burberry as well. Amazing. Amazing. So to wrap up, you know, it's, it's beautiful. I love, I love the motivational words that you always sort of use. And and I, I definitely always ask my guests to sort of give advice and inspire and empower the audience. And I want to um, <coughs> quote something that you say, 
which is specifically geared towards, you know, empowering the younger generation of women. And you say you need to be kind and to open the doors and leave them open for the women behind you. So I, I love that. It's beautiful and it's completely selfless. And so talk to me about those words and what they mean to you. Thank you. So, I mean, I have um, benefited from, you know, incredible female mentors and friendships throughout my life. And there's always, you know, been a lot of, you know, male advocates um, who have, you know, helped me, whether it was in investment banking or, you know, at various companies I've worked at. Um, And I think as women, um, as, you know, the minority still, um, we face a lot of obstacles. And, you know, I definitely had to... um, you know, force open a lot of doors that weren't necessarily open for me. Yeah. Um, and I think it's incredibly important to leave those doors open. So the younger generation can not only walk through them, but literally glide through them. Amazing. Um, and then continue to open doors for other generations after them. I love that. I love that. I love it. You're so <laughs> exciting to speak to and you're so inspiring. And, you know, honestly, I can't thank you enough for being part of our conversations today And, you know, I'm certain we're going to continue conversing because you're just a fabulous human being. So thank you so much for joining me on Turban Thinker. And until next time, take care and stay safe in the hurricane.